At Skyview, we strive to love God and others through generous hospitality and meaningful friendship. For more information about Skyview Church, please visit us at www.skyviewchurch.ca. John chapter 9, reading from verse 1 through 12 and then verses 35 through 41. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, the word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. And how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Jesus heard that they had thrown this man out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him uh, with, with, who were with him, heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. In November, we had an opportunity um, to visit with the ministry called the Seed of Hope. And um, it is uh, in South Africa, my native land, uh, where I'm from, although not the same region where I was born and raised. Uh, Durban is, uh, is, is a humid coastal city on the Indian Ocean. Uh, Amanzimtodi is a beautiful place, very green and lush. And I'm convinced that I sing better and play the drums better when I'm in Africa. <laughs> you know, I... That, that very same sentiment has been met with lots of sarcasm and questioning from the team. But uh, every morning began with a time of worship and prayer. And these drums were in that room. And uh, it, it represents to me uh, maybe just that uh, simplicity of starting the day in the presence of the Lord. Um, along uh, with our team, we actually met up with Kelly and Jody, uh, Alana, Adam and Lauren who have been away for, as some of you know, for about four months. And they stayed longer than we did at the Seat of Hope. 
And this morning, I, I, I'm so privileged and I'm so excited for you to hear some of what God has said and done in their lives. And then at the end, I will come and share a little bit. So I'm not going to announce everybody. I'm just going to ask Lauren to come first. And then I believe it's followed by Adam. And then we do have Gary who's going to say a few words as well. Alana, Jody, and Kelly. And then I will come. So let's make them all feel welcome as they come and share. Hello. Um, going into South Africa and going to the Seat of Hope, I thought that the kids and staff would all be just sad and with sorrow because of the lives and the problems they have. Um, but the kids at the Seat of Hope are, happy, are always happy and always smiling. People think that South Africa is poor and nobody's happy and nobody can do anything with their lives. But people have so much potential and they can do so much... They can do amazing things in their community. The kids are so talented and fun, happy, and I didn't hear one complaint about their family or sickness in their family or anything. So South Africa is not sad and not and not weary. They can do people can do amazing things in in their community. Amen. <laughs> Um, one of my big jobs in South Africa was something I like to call my soccer ministry. Um, but, uh, yeah, just like I expected, they kicked my butt pretty hard in soccer. But, um, yeah, I just enjoyed because they have a big, like, nice concrete pad. And um, it's almost like they were born with a soccer ball, like, by their side because they just, like, and they're insane with their soccer skills. And they have, uh, with that concrete pad, they are just, like, jumping off of things that they shouldn't jump off of. So they have, like, feet of leather. They're, like, the soles of their feet are, like, two inches thick. But, um, yeah, we play, I just loved playing soccer. Like, every day when we went to the Seat of Hope, just brought out a ball and it gathered a bunch of um, bo- older boys. But, um, yeah, it was really fun. And... The soccer ball I bought turned into a deflated, ripped-up mess by the time we were done with it. But, yeah, I just really enjoyed having time to uh, spend with them and just playing soccer. You know, I have a busy life. I have six kids, a bunch of grandkids, and a great job, and I'm busy. My agenda is full. I get my email wherever I go. You know, I really didn't have time, you know, to go to Africa. But for some reason, I felt, well, I was invited by Kelly, and I went. And um, it's really interesting. You get to, um, well, Bekla Wanley, um, 50% of the people there, have AIDS, and there's a whole generation missing. You see very few people between the ages of 25 and 40. You have grandmothers raising kids. You have older kids raising kids. And one of the ministries of the Seed of Hope is to is um, AIDS awareness, because uh, there is drugs that you can do to treat that. 
and give people a normal life. And the government of South Africa provides these drugs to the people, but a lot of people don't know about it. So a lot of the community workers uh, that are there, they go out and visit the homes and help them, explain to them, and you know, help them so that they can have a better life. So they have a busy agenda. They have to be places and go places and do places. And Jeff and I had an opportunity. Actually, we all had an opportunity to go with these community development workers and see them in action. So we were going to one grandmother who had a 13-year-old child. They both have had AIDS, and they were just. But the grandmother wasn't getting it. wasn't taking her drugs on time. She was getting sicker. The young daughter was doing fine. So we're walking on this trail through the huts, and you know we get to. You know, we finally get to the home, but before we get there, we pass this uh, man on the side of the road. He's in his early 50s, and, you know, it looks pretty, pretty um, just there, sad, depressed. And as we're walking past him, she says to me, the Lord's telling me I need to, need to speak to him. But first we go to the, the uh, lady's house. You know, we, we do the ministry there. They brought some food for them. They explained the drug issue. And on the way back... She stops in front of this fellow and says, you know, God's telling me I should speak with you. Do you mind if I talk with you for a moment? He says, well, if God says it, you know, sure. And he wasn't a Christian or anything. But um, anyway, so this was uh, Jabu. Jabu and Buli were there. We were just, Jeff and I were just kind of tagging along watching. And they were speaking to him in Zulu. But we could tell that... um, you know, she was saying, well, have you been tested for AIDS and all that? And, and finally, after a while, she's, you know, she says, well, do you, have, do you know the Lord? He says, well, what do you mean? And so then they explain the, uh, you know, uh, the message of salvation to him. And they actually led him to the Lord right there. And it, it basically what it said to me is, like, in our lives here, we are so busy with our agenda. And they were busy with their agenda, too. And, um, and I asked her the next day, well, why did you stop? Well, the Lord told me to. Well, how do you know the Lord? Well, you have to listen for his still voice. And uh, how many situations do we find ourselves every day where we see somebody in need, but we have our agendas and we walk by? So if anything, I think uh, being in South Africa, did we really do that much? I don't know. But did it make a big difference in our lives? And hopefully, will it make a difference in the world? And yeah. The verdict's still out, but um, it was uh, it was a very it was a very uh, well it was an important experience. And if any of you have the opportunity to do it, you know, try to find time in your agenda. You know, just set it aside for a bit, and God will bless you. During our time in South Africa, we met a lot of really cool people, um, but one of the people who inspired me the most was a lady named Karen, who is a South African woman who uh, just decided to come and volunteer, and she had worked at the Seat of Hope for a very long time, but she was called to Morocco, and so this is a journal entry I wrote um, at her final like going away party at the Seat of Hope. Um, Karen must be popular because she packed the Samuni room full of people from the community, young and old. There's beautiful singing, sharing of poems and memories about Karen, and I'm pretty sure I had goosebumps the whole time. Karen just really poured her heart into the community, a community that wasn't even her own, and today I saw 
the result it made. There were many tears of sadness for Karin's leaving, but there were also many tears of thankfulness. Karin was there for the sick with prayer, love, and rides to the hospital. She was there for the youth of the community by teaching them to be leaders, to believe in themselves, and how to set good examples for future generations. One of the biggest things that Karin did for these people was just be there. Be there when their families are sick, give her car to people by driving them places, and caring about people's lives. It was amazing to see what an impact those things made on the people of Beckham Wanley, and it was truly inspiring. If I can apply that same loving spirit that Karin has when I get home, even in the city of Calgary, I could make a difference. Showing people that they are people of value and putting other people before myself is something I'll strive to do more now, all because of Karin. Another thing that I noticed at the party today was that Karin received out of her work something that many, especially in North America, don't, and that's seeing the difference you make. Karin is so wealthy with love, friendship, and appreciation, and it made me reassess the idea of the American dream. Whatever I do with my life, one thing is for sure, I'll do my best to let all that I do be done in love and to try and give my time and my life to people who will benefit from it. So Karin just really inspired me just because um, she went and especially helped the youth of the community just to believe in themselves in such a difficult place um, in their communities where there's lots of violence and hate, especially among young boys there. And it was just really inspiring to see the difference that she made. And um, I hope that someday I'll be able to make that difference in my own community too. Um, this is just, uh, again, as Alana read from her journal, um, the family blog that we had ser served as a journal for me. And um, this is a story of a young boy who impacted me deeply. His name is Seasway, and he wears the same blue hoodie every day. His pants are in complete tatters. He's HIV positive. His face is splotchy from sores, and his scalp just doesn't look healthy at all. Some of the children here are so beautiful, radiant skin, beautiful smiles, but not C's way. He looks sad and angry. We've made a special effort to give him extra hugs and offer our hand. We've pushed him on the swing and taken his picture multiple times. There seems to be much status gained in having your picture taken, thus the reason we have no less than 50,000 pictures of cute kids on the playground. Um, the day before I wrote this, I had actually found out his full story. He lives with his aunt, who doesn't really care to have him. She has her own baby and her own responsibilities. Oftentimes, she leaves to go stay with her boyfriend in a neighboring township. She doesn't work. She receives a government grant of 250 rand a month to take care of her baby. The day before that, we had spent 250 rand on lunch alone. When the aunt leaves, he's on his own, nine years old and on his own to fend for himself. Who knows what his living conditions are like? As I lay in bed the night before I wrote this, listening to the rain, not able to sleep, all I could think about was his sad little face. Where was he right then? Was he curled up on a cold mud floor somewhere in the township that we drive through every day on our way to the center? Was he getting wet from the rain? Was he alone and scared? Or was this just another regular night for him in his already long, hard life? As I lay there, I thought about what it would be like to go and find him in the dark, to pick him up, and put him in our van, and to bring him back to our warm apartment, to give him a bath and soothe his skin, to dress him in clean underwear and cozy jammies, and to wrap him in a blanket, and let him go to sleep on a bed with a pillow 
under a duvet where he's safe. What would that be like for this sad little boy? My heart broke because I knew that we wouldn't do it. We just wouldn't. It's not fair to assume that he would be able to, that he would want to go with us. We don't speak his language and he has really no reason to trust us. I'm not Madonna or Angelina Jolie and I understand that he's not mine to just go and take. But what are we supposed to do? I find it so sad and so frustrating that there isn't a system of some sort in place for these kids. Who's responsible? The government just seems so corrupt and misguided from everything I'd seen and read in the papers. To further add to the gray skies that surrounded us over those days, we had found out that morning that a young man was stabbed to death just up the hill from the center. He was 18, he's the 18-year-old brother of Tola, a young lady who worked at the center as a Simunier leader. Heather Liebenberg had arrived at the office just a few minutes ago as I was writing this and said through tears, it's HIV that brings you to this community to help, but it's the violence that's taking these young men out. She's so right. Once these boys we play with on the playground reach their 20s, it seems there's no opportunity for them and no hope. But I guess that's what the seed of hope is trying to do in this little rural township of Beckelawandley. Plant the seed that there is hope no matter who you are or what your circumstance. They do it through HIV support programs for adults and little kids like Seasway, through home visits with vegetables and prayer, after-school programs, games of tag on the playground, peanut butter and apricot jam sandwiches, sewing programs, more prayer, and lots and lots of singing. The kids know when they come through the doors of the Seat of Hope, they're safe and they're very much loved. You know, I knew that we won't change Seasway's life in the two months that we are there, but he will get some hugs and pushes on the swing that he wouldn't have otherwise received. Is, it, is that enough? I don't know. I do know that I will never forget him. I will always pray for him, and I was going to make sure that he got some new pants before we left, and that we did. So you should all be thanking yourselves that we're not forcing you to look at all of our 10,000 pictures that we have. Um, it was uh, uh, a trip of a lifetime for our family. And um, uh, what you don't know is that before our family and before we met up with the Skyview team uh, in Becca Wanley and at the Seat of Hope, that we uh, as a family spent two months uh, in Europe. Uh, I was visiting professor at uh, University of Ghent on a sabbatical. I can't stress that enough that I was on a sabbatical. This was not a holiday, okay? Um, as far as my university knows, it was a sabbatical. So uh, I'd appreciate if you could keep saying that uh, on my behalf. Uh, but we spent um, uh, two months in Ghent and uh, it was uh, that that time in in, in Belgium. Uh, we we spent time in Paris and London, and uh, really went through um, uh, what what I call the wow part of our trip. Uh, we saw amazing things that we'd always wanted to see. Uh, all the highlights uh, of Paris, the Eiffel Tower, uh, Notre Dame in London, um, Buckingham Palace, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, the wow factor was uh, was loud and clear, um, and in fact, we kind of became wow snobs. Uh, in fact, because it was like, if something wasn't, it was only 800 years old. We're like, you know what? We we saw something there that was 1,200 years is only 800. 
that's not good enough uh, for us. Um, and so uh, we, you know, we, we became very, um, in some ways, desensitized to the magnificent things uh, that we saw. Uh, but at the same time, we took in uh, everything we could uh, in enjoying all that uh, men with wisdom and power and money uh, had created. My experience was of many um, is, was a little different, and it's so good to hear my kids share. That in itself is, is a priceless uh, experience. Um, for us, it came when we took a trip, a uh, side trip after our time at the Seat of Hope with the Skyview team. We went uh, with Stuart and the team down to Cape Town. Uh, which is Stuart's hometown. And, and there I met again um, the family, uh, Peter and Sybil. How do you pronounce I don't even know how you pronounce it in Laos. It is low. Interesting. Peter and Sybil Lowe, uh, who took in and were best friends of, of Stuart's uh, parents. Um, and when his family uh, had the tragic uh, accident that took their lives, uh, this was the family that, in, in essence, uh, took Stuart and his brother Quentin um, uh, under their wing and under, under their responsibility. They're a diminutive, colored couple, uh, and if they walked in here, you would be noted, they would be notable probably only by the color of their skin uh, in the sense that they are not people who command immediately uh, attention. But as I've got to know Peter and Sybil over the last three years in particular, um, I've come to understand that uh, it, is, um, it is in their lives truly that they have come to understand what is important in life. And in, I'll limit my comments to, th- to, to uh, two things. Um, as I said, um, uh, Stuart's parents were best friends with Peter and Sybil. And in talking with Peter, I had some time to spend alone with him. And he said he made a commitment to uh, uh, Stuart's parents uh, that um, they wanted to have Stuart study uh, and potentially do ministry uh, outside of South Africa. And it was in their um, ability to take something that, was, that they held very deeply in Stuart's life uh, and give that away and give it back. And in fact, we are blessed because of that gift uh, and, and, um, uh, and their experience of holding loosely to that. But my, my wow experience that, over, that, that was over and above anything that I had uh, in seeing all the magnificent cathedrals and museums uh, and, and structures in Europe came when Peter and Sybil took us uh, through their township where they've been doing ministry for almost 20 years uh, called Sir Lowry's Pass. And I was really taken aback by our experience of simply driving into the community uh, as Peter's vehicle was ahead of us. And I could see people peering in the windows wondering, what are all these white people, first of all, doing in our community? But secondly, as they noticed that Peter was in the vehicle in front of us, waves and cheers and, and hellos and kids that were holding beer in their hands running into the bush or away because they didn't want... Peter to see them, you know, doing things that they knew that he would not approve of. It was a little like the King of Kensington uh, in South Africa, and how he over he and Sybil over their years of ministry had made such a difference. My last reflection is when they brought us to the church that they had built. That was the whole purpose for going to their community to see 
their church. Um, for almost 17 years, they had met in a room much smaller than the platform, probably half the size of our platform, uh, and had done ministry in uh, Sir Lowry's Pass. And I remember walking into that church and being absolutely overtaken by emotion. And again, consider that I'd seen the most magnificent churches and structures that the world has to offer. And I walked into this little cinder block church with a two-by-four cross and uncomfortable benches and unfinished windows and rooms, and I was absolutely speechless. And I walked out of there thinking that I have truly, um, for the first time, experienced holy ground. And I was also speechless because, for the first time, I truly came to understand what it means to hold loosely to the things that God has given you and give those back and allow blessings to flow from that. Peter and Sybil are not wealthy people. They are not the highest of intellect uh, compared to where Peter even works. He's been at the University of Cape Town for over 40 years uh, working in the, in the biochemistry department. These are people who truly understand what it means to be wealthy and to give that away and to, to reap that in relationship and in experience of what God can do when we hold loosely. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I had seen the best of what man can do with his gifts and talents and his wealth uh, and had that wow factor. But it wasn't until I came in the doors of that church um, and stood with Peter and understood what uh, humble and meek and faithful people can do uh, when you give everything back to God. And that was my wow factor uh, for our experience uh, amid so many good things that happen. Turn this back to Stu. I am mindful of the time. Um, and as we um, talked amongst each other to share with you, um, this particular scripture came to mind for a very particular reason. When we are confronted with suffering, we are left with some decisions to make. Um, in the particular scripture I read to you, the disciples along with Jesus sees a man who is blind from birth. And they determine very quickly what was culturally um, understood to be the cause of illness. They assumed that sin resulted in the man's blindness. When we were in South Africa, we, uh, we couldn't help, and please understand, I, I know that there is brokenness and suffering in our communities and very close to our homes sometimes, but when you're in South Africa, the visibility of suffering uh, is, is so much more widespread. You, you can see people in pain. Uh, that little boy sees way. He, he didn't take rocket science to recognize that when you first saw his countenance that there was a deep sorrow and pain. And the natural reaction of humanity is to try and determine who is to blame, who is responsible, who did this. In fact, in our scripture this morning, they, they turn to Jesus and they say, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Even though the scripture says that he was born blind... They still believed in that culture, in that time, that even in the womb, an unborn can have enmity towards God, can have a, 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 a negative countenance, a negative response towards the divine. And Jesus quickly shifts their attention from blame, from who is responsible, 
and says very particularly to him that this man's blindness is rather an occasion for God's work to be displayed in him. You know what the definition of sin is in John's Gospel? It is not morality. It is not our actions. It's not what we do or don't do. In John, sin is defined by choosing to remain blind to the revelation of God and the kingdom. Sin is defined not by what this man has done or what his parents has done, but sin is defined by choosing not to open one's eyes to what God would have you see. Sin is defined as walking with, and my wife's going to laugh, because I don't know which to use in our culture, blinkers or blinders, but sin is defined as both of those things. When we we choose not to open our eyes and see. Um, This man, no doubt suffered. Jesus comes along. And even though it's about a blind man, it's really about the perception of those who are following Jesus. And I very quickly want to just share three quick ways in which Jesus challenges his disciples to see and open their eyes. First, Jesus simply challenges them to see beyond blame. It is easy for us to want to judge and find the reason for suffering. It is easy for us to want to find who is responsible. And can I say this to you? It's no small thing that when you have suffered tremendously, that there is some level of accountability that needs to come to those responsible. I know that in life there are things that I do that I bring upon myself. There are things that others have done that have brought pain to my own life, like the man who who drove drunk and in, in, in one decision took away both parents and brother and sister. I understand that we live in that kind of reality of a world in which not only my personal actions, but the actions of others can rob me, can hurt me, can create suffering. But you know what Jesus is saying here? He says, listen, this suffering is a true reality, but there is a hope that comes through who I am. I am truly the hope amidst your pain. I am the one that does help you to see beyond the cause and to find in me a hope that says there can be a better life. There can be a hope. When we were in Bekelawandle, we could look at many circumstances. Sees where stories, it's just one of the stories that jumps out at me. You know, what happened to his mom? What did she do? Why is the aunt the way she is? How can anybody in good conscience allow a nine-year-old boy to raise himself? So many questions, so many reasons. But you know what Seed of Hope stands for? Is the ability to see through the eyes of the kingdom and to not look so much at what caused, but as how God's kingdom can break through in a young boy's life and make a difference. Not only does Jesus encourage his disciples to see beyond blame, but when you start to see through the eyes of the kingdom, your eyes are often filled with both tears and hope. You know, to be Christian is to feel pain. Our salvation has been birthed in the life and the body of a Savior who was brutally tortured and killed. 
we in our culture want at all costs to escape pain. We have pain medication, painkillers. I have to watch myself because the moment I just have the slightest inkling of a headache, I want to get an Advil. We live in a culture that, that wants to desensitize us to pain. But you know, you cannot love as Jesus loved and not experience pain. When you, when you start to open your heart and your life the way Jesus does, you will start to cry and hurt for the things not only of your life, but of the lives of so many other people. You see, unless our hearts are broken for what breaks the heart of God, will we become those kinds of people that matter? I saw the pain in those who were on our team. And, you know, as a pastor, as a father, let alone a pastor, I hate seeing my kids in pain. I, I don't want them to hurt. I will, I will go ask Ruthann. I'm bad this way. I, I will try to tape up a tree's branches so that they can't hurt them if I could. I, I would put styrofoam all over a play place if I thought it was dangerous. I, that, that's me. I just want to protect them. But I also understand that pain teaches them. It leads them. It deeply affects them. That is why I believe that some of us, until we truly experience pain are able to truly love. And amidst the pain, amidst the hurt, there was a hope, a hope that came through people like Jabu and Musa, people like Karin, who give their life towards the needs of those less fortunate. Sometimes kingdom eyes are filled, or often eyes are filled with tears and hope. But kingdom eyes can also see light in very dark places. I'm just taking for granted that you would believe I've done my work in preparing the message, but I'm looking at the clock, so I'm going to be as brief as I can. When my family died, um, I was truly homeless. I lived with my parents until I was 22 years old, along with my younger brother and sister who died in the car accident. Peter and Sybil has a very... uh, um, small, comfortable home. They invited me in. They put built-in cupboards in because they knew I had built-in cupboards growing up. Uh, they gave me one job. You clean the pool. I was terrible at it. In fact, when a team went, they could see the pool was still the way I left it when I left South Africa. Peter works full-time. Both him and Sybil have worked with the same companies for organizations for over 40 years. Sybil retired two years ago. When my dad was a district superintendent, my dad approached Peter. Peter, not educated, not theologically trained, uh, a man that is very humble, and said to Peter, I I really want you to take over this community and and be their pastor. Peter agreed. That was 20 years. And faithfully drove to Salori's Pass three, four times a week to minister to the people. From the moment I became aware of what Peter was doing, I would hear him in every conversation we had say this when we talked about the church. Oh, how I long just to be able to build a church here. A church that can stay. A church that can be here. i got to tell you folks, 20 years is a long time. When we drove into that community and we saw all we saw, 
kids smoking up on the side of the road, little kids abandoned, running around, poverty all widespread, the homes lining the streets that you could see were, were, were just constructed out of whatever people could find. When we drove down that road and we saw that building, that, 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 that non-beautiful building, I had this thought that light has entered darkness here. Hope has come. In fact, I want to borrow uh, just an illustration from Alana. I think Alana, on her Facebook post, and by the way, she's incredibly gifted, articulate in her expression, and the way she conveys thoughts, but she defined this building, which is unfinished, she defined it as, 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 as more beautiful than a cathedral. And this is what I thought of you, Alana. I said, how profound that you see that. Because kingdom eyes see not the suffering and pain, but the light that can shine where it is most needed. I have to say to you that as a pastor, I will always have affinity for South Africa. After all, I sing better there. I play the drums better there. But it is in South Africa that God affirmed deep within my heart an even greater capacity and love for Calgary and our people here. I fear that I might become, uh, you know, judgmental based upon what I've experienced. And I've really asked the Lord to help me to enter back into our community with the ability to see you and the world around me through his eyes. Folks, we have an opportunity as a church to see through kingdom eyes. To, to, to look beyond some of the things that keep us from the most needed. Will we sacrifice the call of God for the sake of our comfort? Will we sacrifice and keep ourselves averted to the needs of our world and our communities and the people God has placed in our life. They are seasweres in our lives. Or will we allow the Spirit of God to break our hearts and to open our eyes? Jesus did that for us on the cross. He came, innocent, a man that lived without any reason to be persecuted, allowed himself to be broken so that we may know love. And this morning as we participate in communion as a closing to our service, I, I want to challenge you to think deeply about what has been said. What is the value and the purpose of your life? When's the last time that your heart has been broken for the needs of others? When is the last time that you entered places or circumstances that are scary because you believe so deeply that God meets you there? This coming year for us is a year that is significant, I believe, as a community. We do not want to just be 
surviving, existing. We want to make a difference. And instead of looking around and and, and finding reasons why we cannot, how about when we enter in this morning in community as a close to our service, we enter in this way, Father, open my eyes to the suffering Christ that I may take within me the very God who died for this world and be willing to love as he loved. Lord, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the gift of life. Help us to live according to your will, being empowered by your spirit and bringing glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Please take some time to say farewell to one another. And God bless you as you worship with us.